Hello and welcome to the Francisca Show podcast. This is Francisca speaking and today we have an awesome guest by the name of Laura Melnikov. So a little bit about Laura. She is a cellist in Brooklyn, a native New Yorker, and Laura lives in Crown Heights right now with her husband and two little boys. She started playing cello at the age of six and pursued it through college at Manus, the new school of music, to a master's degree in cello performance from Tel Aviv University. Always on the spiritual side, Laura took interest in her Jewish heritage while in high school at LaGuardia Arts, discovering Chabad in her new neighborhood of the Upper West Side when she was 16. She continues to probe deeper into what being a Jew means, what being a musician means, and how to be both. Her performances have included Carnegie Hall, Weill Recital Hall, the Aspen Music Festival, major stages in Spain, Germany, Ukraine, and Israel, the airwaves of the WQXR and Israel's Kol HaMusika, the Chabad Kines Hashluchos, and Fabregenes in Fabregens. Fabregens. Fabregens in yeah. Crown Heights and beyond. Some of her current projects and upcoming engagements are with the Agnon String Quartet, the New Moon All-Stars Party Band, and an off-Broadway run in the orchestra on the National Yiddish Theater Volksbein. Okay, well, that's awesome. There is so much going on. You just sound like one bowl of talent just exploding. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you so much for interviewing here. My first question for you. So you mentioned that you found the Chabad community at the age of 16. So, yep. so you're a Balachuva? That's right. Okay, can you tell yep. us more about that? Uh, you know, your childhood versus uh, going into adolescence and finding um, Jewish Judaism. Sure thing. So I grew up in a family where I knew both parents were Jewish, whole extended family Jewish, that meant that I was Jewish. And beyond that, we didn't really do much. We let the, uh, on Hanukkah, we let the menorah. We would go to Passover seders with our friends down in Maryland who did all kinds of interesting things like have an orange on the table and, and um, waters of Miriam and all that good stuff. And so I had a good sense of what Judaism meant for the people in my life. I would go to bar mitzvahs. But it wasn't something that we as a family practiced all that much. It didn't play a daily role in our lives. But I was always so drawn to it. My mom had these um, three volumes of the Jewish catalog from the 1970s. I don't know if you've heard of that. They're these great, oh, the Jewish catalog. That's what it's called. They were put out in the 70s, early 80s, I believe. And they're just full of information about goings on in the Jewish world at that point, something like that could be a sort of central resource and uh, pictures of Israel. And I just love these things. Like it had this flavor of like um, Zionist early, like, I know mid seventies Zionism. Just, I love that stuff. So that was kind of my, my main source growing up was just reading these catalogs sometimes off the bookshelf. And I just really, I was just really drawn to it. And, um, and then I didn't have that much of an outlet for it. So it was just kind of something in the back of my mind. 
And um, then when I was in middle school, I went to this, um, at the time, the pilot program for the special music school in Lincoln Center. And it was full of Russians, like kids and their families who had just come from ex-Soviet Union states who were coming to New York City um, and had studied music very seriously in the old country and were pursuing it seriously here in New York City as a way kind of in. And... um, and seeing that they had so much pride and belonging in their like ethnic identities really impressed me. I really loved that, and I wanted that for myself. So um, these were all these were things that were kind of floating around. Then, when I was 11 years old, my mother passed away, and that was obviously a huge trigger for you know wondering what happens to us after we pass away and therefore what is the meaning of life and big questions like that. So this was kind of simmering for me up through um, middle school, early high school. And then when I was in high school, my best friend, Ilana Ellis Klein, who herself is very artistic, she she sat next to me in orchestra playing cello. She went on to study film. She's, she's great. And um, so... She's two years older than me, so that meant that she went on to college two years before I graduated. And when she got to college at SUNY Purchase studying film, she got involved with Jewish life on campus, the Hillel, and the Chabad House. She was she became familiar with all that, and so she found out about the Chabad House in our neighborhood. So when she found out about the Chabad House in our neighborhood, she called me up and asked me if I'd be interested in coming with her. So this is a whole story because she left a message on my phone and I, when I listened to it, maybe it got garbled, maybe I wasn't listening, but I thought she was inviting me to a yoga class for Jewish people, which I thought sounded really cool. I was so into that. And it was also something we did together. We just did yoga together sometimes. So I thought this was just another thing we'd do it was, that would have some sort of Jewish content. And I loved the sound of it. So I told her I was coming and to pick me up on Saturday morning. And we'd go together. So she picked me up on Saturday morning. I had, like, just rolled out of bed. And she was wearing a cute dress. And I figured she was going to change when we got there. And so I showed her these new yoga pants that I had just purchased. And I asked her opinion, should I wear the new ones or should I wear the old ones? Because I know they fit. And she just didn't know how to answer me. So so we just stood in confusion for a couple minutes until she clarified and <laughs> said to me, you know, we're going to shul, right? We're going to like an orthodox shul. Maybe you want to wear a skirt. I don't know, but I feel like those yoga pants aren't going to be appropriate. <laughs> and so, um, so we got on the same page, and we ended up we were going to Chabad, and it was really amazing because that particular week was the first time the Chabad of the Upper West Side, I guess it's called Chabad of the West Side, was um, hosting their first learner service, it geared towards people like myself and Alana, who had who needed some major guidance and what it would be like to just participate in Shabbos chakra service, just how that, how that all goes, what it all means, what to do, when, when to stand, when to sit, how do you know? And, um, it was just really great timing. So that was our first introduction. And when we got there, we were the only two people to come that week. And so like many weeks after that, 
um, we just kept going because it was an opportunity for us to just ask any old question. They had all the time in the world for us, these two rabbis, Rabbi Chaim Barachalevsky and Rabbi Meir Asi. They just took our questions as best they could. They really considered what, what were we really asking as we tried to formulate, you know, big questions about the meaning of life and, and controversial, seemingly controversial things about Yiddishkeit. And, um, and the answers were so compelling. And so we just kept going. Wow. That's amazing. So sounds like you got hooked and you never looked back. Yep, majorly. How did that affect your music career? So um, Shabbos is obviously a big one. Um, yes. When I became interested in keeping Shabbos, I I was a couple years into having gone to Chabad, um, these learner service classes. And so I had come to see that Judaism is something you learn by experiencing it. And it had provided me so much meaning and purpose. So I could see that Shabbos was this really big thing. <laughs> and I really wanted to try it on for myself. And I, I took the year that I went away for college. I did my first year of my undergraduate at the University of Cincinnati's um, College Conservatory of Music. So I was going to a new place, no one knew me. And that was the perfect opportunity to try something crazy like keeping Shabbos. And um, I was just really compelled to do it from within like a big word in like on Chabad.org, you see the word super rational a lot, that there's some something in us namely the neshama, but there's just something, there was something in me that just really wanted to try Shabbos, even though, even at that young and tender age of 18, I could definitely understand that it would be an impediment to my music life, but I just really wanted to try it, (laughs) so I did. And so when I first started going to the Chabad house on campus at the University of Cincinnati, it was actually a really formative experience. This was a whole year that I didn't, you know, I didn't commit per se. Like I didn't tell anyone I was going to try keeping Shabbos. I think I just really wanted to try it. And it became apparent to some people in my life who like knew what I, you know, could tell the signs like my rabbi and Rebison and my, and Lana. And then like when I started to say things like, Oh, I, I'm not going to fly in on Friday afternoon because it's going to be too too close to Shabbos and it was like okay she's really <laughs> you know my dad could could uh, start seeing what what was bubbling under the surface there but what was so important to me from that year was the fact that when I was going to Shabbat dinner that was actually the first experience I was having since I was a little girl where I was in a social situation where I didn't have the cello as an interface. I had been studying music seriously since the age of like, I guess really since the age of 11 when I started going to the special music school and everything was about music and everything I did was with my little music friends and, and I wanted that. But after a while, it, it really became um, this issue of seeing my self-worth as dependent on how well I could play the cello and how seriously I could seem to take playing cello. 
And to have an opportunity where the cello wasn't going to be in the picture because it was Shabbos, you don't play cello on Shabbos, was a total revelation to me. So um, so I've held on to that. I've, I've really needed that. And even after that year, it's taken until like the next, so the next big step after Shabbos was getting married and having kids. That's like another decision to be made with like religion in mind. And, um, and so it wasn't until that, that I could see how really how important that was to me to, uh, to have a total change of perspective of what, how I could determine my self value. Wow. So that's an incredible journey. I'd like to hear more about your chat, your childhood and the special music school. Um, but I also want to hear more about when you decided you wanted to get married, how did that process work and how was that whole experience? <laughs> was it okay, a so did, it did you just meet him at a Chabad house somewhere? Yep. It, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Getting close. I'll let you talk. <laughs> <laughs> I met my husband at the Sheva Brachis of our mutual friend at Chabad of Harlem in Manhattan. Um, she was my roommate at the Mayanot Seminary in Israel, which I went to for a summer program. And we we ended up at the summer, summer program together, roommates, both from Manhattan and had never met, um, Jamie Schwade. And um, she... She was just, she became a close, fast friend. We're still in touch. And um, and so my husband at the time, um, he was living in Harlem. He had moved to the city and um, he's originally from Chicago. And, oh, well, he's got a whole story. So I guess I'll just focus in on the chapter where we met and got married. But he, um, yeah, he was in town for her Sheva Brachas. He had been out of town for a while because he's uh he's an army service member and so he had just come back from a round of training just in time for her wedding and so at her wedding apparently his friend had pointed me out to him and he said he thought we'd be a good match and then another friend also said she thought we'd be a good match and so we finally got to sit down together at the Sheva Brachis and and meet and he made a cello joke (laughs) and um about like the composer Elgar and and he the joke was for for everyone's benefit the joke was um does your favorite composer's name rhyme with Gelgar so that my husband everyone (laughs) so he um he was in town for only a few more months because although he was in the reserves and had been in the reserves for a couple of years at that point, after a few years of active service, his reserve unit was activated and was being sent to Afghanistan. And so we like hung around in this social circle around the Chabad of Harlem for a couple of months, but then, then he was away for a year doing this um, tour of duty in Afghanistan and the accompanying training. And they do a, a cycle afterwards to like reintegrate when they come back to the States. So um, as soon as he came back, I then went to Israel to start my master's degree. <laughs> we overlapped for just a couple of weeks and we like, we went to see uh, the New York Philharmonic. He like took me to see the New York Philharmonic. It was really sweet, but it was, 
it was hard because I was about to go. And, um, but it all worked out, of course, because a few months later he came to Jerusalem to spend a few weeks at the Mayano Yeshiva for men. And so we started dating men. And so it was this whole thing like, okay, we, we dated in Israel for a little bit, but then I had uh, a month vacation. And so I was in New York City for a few weeks and we dated then. But like, I was in the middle of my master's degree. I was really stressed out about it. It was very intensive. And, um, but I, we were just drawn to each other. And I really, um, it, was, it was hard. There was, it was really a, a, a challenge to face life head on, to see that like my fate was before me, <laughs> my husband. Uh, it, like it was, it was pretty obvious to both of us, but the timing really um, scared me. It was the first time I had dated. I, I hadn't even, I, I didn't think of marriage as realistic at that point, but Hashem said it was. So we got married in the summer between the two years of my master's degree. Wow. And then we moved back to Israel together so I could finish it out. And then um, three months after I finished classes, I had my first baby boy. He was born in Jerusalem. That's amazing. Is your husband a musician too? No. uh, Well, he plays guitar beautifully. Um, He is in business. He, uh, He just completed a degree in business and um he works for jet.com right now so um and then the, he he reports for army duty about once a month so people were, when we got engaged people were like oh you guys are like opposites oh you know he's like he's with the guns and the ammo and you're in the arts it's amazing mm-hmm. opposites attract but he's actually very creative he um he's pretty much been in charge of decorating the home. He manages our kids' wardrobes. <laughs> and he, he really has a flair for the arts. He has, you know, I, I like his taste. <laughs> That's great. So back on you, let's focus a little bit about your accomplishments. You are, you do your classical piece, which I'm sure you practice many hours. I'd like to hear about how many hours you practice, but you basically, you're focusing on two things right now in your music career, as as far as I know. Feel free to correct me. You have the orchestra and the classical part, and then I heard that you are also part of the New Moon All-Stars band, a band, <laughs> with Rivka Nahari, a chamber ensemble. So I'd like to hear about both of those and how how they're different, how you're able to do both, which one you prefer, and you could get started. <laughs> so, um, my whole life, I played only classical music, and that was it. <laughs> that was really it. I loved klezmer music. We had, like, klezmer CDs at home, but I didn't have opportunities to play it. So, it was just, like, all classical all the time, and... Um, I really tried to like it, <laughs> and I do love a lot of classical works, but kind of on an individual basis. Um, and and of course, anything I learn to play on the cello, I I develop a strong connection to. So that's that's its own thing. But um, I 
I had been in this mode of very serious, methodical, um, uh, the, the study, serious and methodical study for ages and ages and ages. My whole, it felt like my whole entire life. I didn't really, you know, I, I kind of introvert, I, I've always been kind of introverted um, and apprehensive about like going out and partying. I don't know, it just kind of scared me to, um, to be that expressive, which is funny because to play classical music, you have to be very expressive, but it's in a more internal way. Um, it's not so effusive. It's kind of concentrated in one space. It's not like you're, um, it's not like one person takes over an entire stage. The energy management is so different than when you're like, you know, like in a pop band or something, or like as a singer songwriter, you can like take over a whole room with your, with just your own presence. Um, and use it more physically than like a cellist has to stay put. So, um, so the, the new moon all stars party band got started, um, as sort of a birthday party band. It just, it started with Dahlia Schusterman. Um, the new moon all stars party band consists of Dahlia Schusterman and Mirella Rosenberger, Donna Peston, Lolita Benkoyel Engelson, Chaya Sarah Weiss, um, Yocheved, Rosenberger Cohen, and um, a few other, we have some more auxiliary members. But um, the idea being that when, when it was started, it was for, it was just, it was a Rosh Chodesh band. So, because Dahlia Schusterman, her birthday's on Rosh Chodesh, and she has three sons who were born on Rosh Chodesh. And so Rosh Chodesh is this huge thing for her. And she's always been really into, like, throwing parties and playing music all the time. And um, and so she got together with Birella Rosenberger and Donna Peston from their Bulletproof Stockings thing. And, um, and so they got called to play a couple birthday parties for friends. And so they were starting to amass this whole repertoire, like their friends that were into like bossa nova and jazz and stuff. And so, so, um, we, things kind of came together. It's really very obvious hashkacha practice that we're able to exist as a band because the, the four core instrumentalists, the four of us, uh, Dahlia, Donna, Mirla, and myself, like, Mirla is a grandmother. Dahlia has four boys. Donna has her son. I have my two little boys. We all have like pretty intense home lives. And, um, and so that we're able to just meet for rehearsal is really like, it's, it, it, we take it as a sign that we really got to make the most of this because it's just amazing that we can get together at all. So we play, we have like a bossa nova set. We have a few songs by like, um, we do a couple Edith Piaf songs. We have some Stevie Wonder, some Louis Armstrong. Uh, what am I missing? We, we just basically play all the songs we like, <laughs> all the songs we know and love that have uplifting messages and make you want to get up and dance. And, um, and this is also that women can just have a good time together. Um, it's kind of like lounge music. We're, we try to think of ways to kind of pull it all together because we have such a diverse repertoire. And the whole point is for women to be able to get together in a space where they can really chill, let go, 
and relax and unite in this feeling of simcha. And um, we think that the music we play is uniquely suited to that. So that's what that's all about. And for myself to play this kind of music, which is all about like, you know, expressive, external, like, you know, dance music, <laughs> as opposed to classical music, where I also have to improvise. It's so new to me. And it's all really, really helpful to me in so many ways. So, um, so that's what that is. Um, the, I also have this, um, Lailit, Lailit ensemble with Rivka Nahari and, um, we have a performance coming up on December 9th in the five towns with Deborah Seidel. And, um, we, uh, we play classical music in Jewish settings by women for women. Rivka Nahari, as we all know, is an amazing singer, also amazing pianist, also amazing flutist, also amazing dance. Like, wow. That lady, talk about like quadruple, quintuple threat. <laughs> so, um, so that's where we're still in the works. We had our debut performance a few weeks ago. And so December 9th is our next thing. That's awesome. And, um, and that's to, you know, to, to bring opportunities for Rivka, and she also has a couple students who need performance opportunities to sing these gorgeous opera art songs. And, um, and there are women who really want to come hear it. Thank God. So, um, so that's what that's for. And um, um, so then I also have this string quartet, the Agnon String Quartet. Um, we're having our debut gig tomorrow. We're playing for um, the Israeli... Oh, here, what, what is it called? I'm going to mess this up. But it's, it's the UN's celebration for the 70th anniversary of the passing of the resolution to end the British mandate over the land of Israel. That's tomorrow. The 29th of November. Like, Israeli Zionists who are listening are going to recognize that date for what it was, which was a, a very complicated-sounding step towards the birth of the state of Israel. And um, so... Our thing is just, uh, okay, so the way we came to be is one of my favorite stories to tell. So it started with this couple um, in my building. So my next door neighbor and another neighbor on the floor, a single woman and a single man were living on our floor. And they met in the elevator. They hit it off. They got engaged. They got married this year. And so she moved into his apartment. And so there was this vacant apartment next door to my apartment. And into that apartment moved Lakey Glick and Avital Mazur, uh, a couple who are Israeli. Lakey plays viola and Avital plays violin. And um, I came home one weekend to hear a violin practicing. And I was like, that can't be from our building. There's just no way there would be a violinist in our building. Just, I, I was in denial. It was too good to be true. And it turned out to be my next door neighbor. We met. It turns out Lakey is related to a bunch of people I know and friends with everybody I know from Israel, these two. So um, we just hadn't actually met. This little circle hadn't been closed until they moved next door to me. So we were like, we have to play together. What, what, what can we do? And they wanted to form a string quartet. They had one other violinist in mind. He lives in Midwood. And, um, and so that's how the Agnon Quartet came to be. 
That's awesome. Okay, so we're running out of time, and I have a few more questions for you. How much time do you rehearse? How much time do you spend playing a day? So it varies a lot. It really just depends on what what is humanly possible. Um, so what, as what much would you as like it to be, and what is it? Where is it at right now? Uh, um, I I don't think I could really tell you because it varies so much. Um, let's see. I I I try to get in an hour of my own practice every day. Sometimes that means just doing my warm ups. That's it. I won't even get to, or I'll I'll get to material that I have to play the next day. It's it's often very minimal like that, mm -hmm. but even a little bit makes a huge difference. And um, sometimes that's really hard because what it used to be was like five hours a day when I was doing my masters, and to know that I had that in me and that that was like this ideal to work towards, and to see that that's actually not possible just not not gonna happen <laughs> the way things are with my baby I have a, a little eight-month-old baby Aww. and stuff it's like as hard as Shabbos was on on um you know seeing myself as a musician because as great as it was to to change my perspective on what really matters it was still hard to to uh prioritize Shabbos over music. It's still, still hard. I wouldn't ever say that it's like a thousand percent amazing, beautiful, sparkly, gorgeous. It's, it's still hard for all the benefits. And same with having a family as any, any parent, I think feels that, um, it's, it's, there's always a little bit of a struggle to, um, maintain your own identity when you're a parent, especially as a mother, when, Like when the baby is really little and needs you so much physically. So, um, so I really struggled with that for a long time. And it's only been in the last couple of months, you know, since when my baby turned six months old, he like, you know, he could kind of handle being away from me more. I could handle, I guess that's really what's important. I could handle being away from him <laughs> for a longer few hours at a time. <laughs> um, And um, until then, it, it's really hard. Like when I don't have an outlet to play cello, when I don't have deadlines to practice for, and when I know I need to take some time to like, you know, just recover from birth, it's, it's weird. It feels uncomfortable. So, um, so that's, that's always a, a source of, you know, tension, questioning, you know. For sure. I can totally relate to that. My baby is six months. <laughs> it's hard, hard to get anything done w when she's around. <laughs> can you tell me more about how you book your gigs and how you get all your venues and platforms to perform? Do you have an agent? Is it your community, the other musicians you're working? Could you share a little bit more about the process of Your gigs you sound like you have lots of places to perform and I'm sure it has to do with that you're not singing maybe perhaps that you can potentially play in front of men I don't know how you feel about it. I would love to hear about your opinions on that matter so sure so yeah I can and do play 
for mixed audiences. Um, I, yeah, I definitely, so here, I, I did, uh, I, I have put a lot of thought into that. Um, the truth is that I think like Ariella said that when it really comes down to it, it's because I really, really want to Mm -hmm. (laughs) just play wherever I can. But there's really something to that. I mean, in a way, I, I am very grateful that I don't have the gift of song um, within my vocal cords. <laughs> I really don't. So um, so I don't have to engage with um, that with Kolisha directly. It's really just a matter. It's really just whatever customs are, are uh, being upheld in communities that I can play for. It's, it's really that's what I'm dealing with the separation between men and women and whether one community or another is more stringent about it. So, um, so do you book these gigs on your own or do you have someone helping you? I, I, I don't have an agent. I just take whatever at this point, it's really just what comes my way. Um, and, and so that's, that's been great. Although I, I mean, of course I always definitely want to do more. So um, figuring out how to make that happen is is a journey. But it also, you know, like, again, balancing the music life with the home life. This is actually a really good pace that I'm at right now. I don't think I can take on a higher volume. Just I just want to know that I have more to look forward to in coming months. So um, in New York City, I, I've been building this network my whole life. So I, I'm able to kind of reach out. Um, to contacts here and there and see if someone wants to do a concert. Um, and and that's that's been a good arrangement for me so far. So it looks like you're doing this pretty successfully, and I'm so happy to hear that. I love to hear successful stories on this show. <laughs> I feel like there's so much negativity potentially that comes out at this point when you're trying to make it a business, which brings me to my million-dollar questions question. Are you able to support yourself with your music? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no. So do you do other things on the side to help bring in the income, or do you solely rely on your husband to do that part so you can focus on music and your home life? Which is absolutely okay, and the way I'm doing it, I'm not judging at all. I need a day job to pay for my music. So, Yeah. <laughs> Just putting yeah. it out there. Yeah. Um, what it, if I didn't have kids, then it would be a lot more simple to just take on more. And um, and then, like, the more you take on, the more gigs you do, the more gigs you get. So it's definitely – I know it's possible. Actually, I don't know if it's possible um, as a Shomer Shabbos musician to really be solvent. I don't know that for sure. But – you know, I have so many friends from school who are doing great with an apartment in the city, um, supporting themselves. Um, so yeah, and when it comes to paying rent, that's on my husband and thank God, um, we have, we have an arrangement that works so that I can still get out and do my thing. Um, and, and really that means that I, I'm doing a lot of the childcare. We're not paying someone else to do the child care so I can get out. So it's like things are gradually building. I do have like a, I have a vision for like building and building and building so that I can, 
I think the idea is for me to, for, you know, the next little while to sort of build up to a point where whatever I do will cover the child's care, whatever expenses I incur to do the music, like you were saying, is, is your, you know, sort of a day job. I teach that, that is, uh, I have a handful of students, so very part-time. And, um, and that, that pretty much covers what I need to, you know, maintain stuff, cello, transportation costs and things like that. Very cool. So it's challenging and being Shomer Shabbos and having a family just makes it even more challenging. And I, I really, can you tell me what your dreams what your vision is for what you would like to do, what you would like there to be in the from world to make it more sustainable. What are your opinions on this matter? And what are, what's your vision? What would you like there to be? What would you like there to be for you? What would you like to do with your music ultimately that you're not doing now? Um, so I, I have ideas for things I want to do, recordings, albums, performance ideas. And um, I think, so I know how to do them because, I know how to pursue that because I have, um, I have the, uh, I, I learned how to, I have the know-how from my secular education on how to do it. And so... And also, like, all kinds of influences of different artists who diff pursue different modes of expression that are, you know, outlandish sometimes. And, um, and so I think, I think this whole, like, uh, that outlandish thing, like, being really pushing boundaries within ourselves, however that might work. Um, is something that needs to be cultivated in the firm world somehow. Um, I don't mean that in any sort of controversial way. Pushing boundaries, like in, in Chabad Hasidus, we talk all the time about transcending our personal limitations. I think that's sort of the translation of what I'm talking about as it can apply like most directly into Hasidic life for women to express themselves. Um, but, you know, people have all kinds of... Um, ideas about why they shouldn't do something creative, whether it doesn't seem affordable, whether it doesn't seem like there's time for it, whether it doesn't seem somehow appropriate or like whether other people would appreciate it or not. So those sorts of things need to be addressed. And, and so that's a lot of stuff. I, <laughs> I don't have an answer for each and every one of them, but um, I can you? definitely identify that as a core issue of, of just encouraging women to pursue their mode of expression some way or another to not feel like they can't. And how do we get there? How, what are you doing to get us there? What am I doing to get there? Um, I really look to um, examples of women who are doing it, whether they are religious or not. Um, I try to take the truth from where it is. And, um, and so I, I don't think that that's a solution for everybody because how do how can you identify that if you don't have the context for it? Um, I, I can't teach that to girls growing up in crown Heights 
because there's so much about our creative side as human beings that that can't be accessed from a religious standpoint. It's not healthy to go there. And I don't, I don't, um, I don't argue that. I don't think that, um, some of the darkness that comes up when people get creative without boundaries on what they can, what, what sort of material or themes that they can, um, engage with. Um, I don't think that, I don't think, uh, okay, I think, in a positive sense, I think that there is a way to teach that that hasn't been discovered yet. Although there's, I, I'm a huge fan of Amy Gooderson at the Zohar Seminary, where, um, so I, she did a podcast with Alad Harai for Hebria, and she, one, one thing she talked about was how she has her girls do morning pages, which is this uh, Julia Cameron thing, the artist's way, this whole method for cultivating creativity for anybody. And um, she has a very spiritual bent in it, a universalist type of thing. So morning pages are simply you get up and you write freehand. Writing by hand is important to this process. Um, You write three pages. It's about 750 words. And it doesn't matter if you have nothing to talk about. It doesn't matter if it's the same thing as yesterday. Just as long as you write and give yourself that time to just empty your mind or give your mind some expression of whatever is in it. You have to shine some light on what's in your head. And um, and so this artist's way, this is a book. It's a method for cultivating creativity. And it's really, really, I highly recommend it. Um, it's the, these morning pages are the key to recovering your sense of confidence so that you can be creative and uncovering reasons why you might you know, just identifying all your blocks and also identifying the ideas you have for creative expression or expression in general or problem solving for any old thing. And um, the idea is that without that sort of outlet, people just don't go there. People, it's really hard to give yourself that time and attention to really listen to yourself, even even if you daven. Like in Hasidus, preparation for davening is such a big thing. And I think something like morning pages is a great idea as preparation for davening. It's just preparation for everything to really, really unlock yourself. So you're saying that's the key really to open the conversation about a more nourishing environment for the arts and for creative process. And that being more of a positive and open thing are we still talking about the same stuff right was I that where you're going def- where you were going with this definitely um it starts from within as many opportunities as i have been given to go perform i still had i still have to give myself that space to just listen to myself what do i want do i want to keep shabbos is it a good idea to keep shabbos is it not a good idea to keep shabbos i really had to sit down and think about this i sit down and think about it regularly because I just I just do I have to and to deny that those thoughts I don't think is healthy to deny the fact that some people have doubts about whatever it is that they do to um how they feel about playing their instrument 
whether they feel positive or negative about it, it's so easy to just push your real thoughts and feelings aside. And so having an outlet like Morning Pages where you really just are honest with yourself, give yourself the space. It takes time. It takes space to let your inner voice talk because there's so much in the way. Wow. I really love this concept. We really have to wrap up here. I just wanted to say I'm sorry about your mother. I never, I didn't want to cut you off when you were talking. It's, I can't even imagine what a loss that is and how that oh, no. might have affected Thanks. you and your journey. And I really love, I love what you said about the morning pages, about reflecting. It, it's a little bit aligned with, I mean, obviously with Hasidus, but also with yoga. You mentioned it at the beginning of, <laughs> of the episode. I don't know if you're still a yogi. I am. <laughs> so right. the self-reflection and being honest with yourself and not shoving your real feelings away in the name of religion is so important. I'm so happy you brought that up. I feel like for our listeners, for our young listeners, it's very important to hear these messages. And, and it's so refreshing to hear that uh, uh, that you're still struggling and you're still asking yourself, is sh- keeping Shabbos worth it? You know, I'm not a bala tshuva, but... I, I'm always asking myself these questions. Is Kalisha worth it? You know, what what can I what can I be if I didn't do it? You know, and um, and every every time there's a challenge, I ask myself that question. It's and I, I'm honest, and I, I feel like it's important to be honest with everyone else and not to pretend like oh I've overcome this Kalisha thing <laughs> and it's became you know I'm this heroine or whatever. No, it's a, it's a struggle every day and almost feels like it's this it's this bubble that just keeps growing and but it could be popped <laughs> because yeah. everywhere we're going it's all really where Hashem lets us go and we're you know just because I wrote a song yesterday doesn't mean I can write a great song tomorrow so it's the constant it's the constant struggle the constant questioning yourself and it's it's a everyday battle and I'm I love that we got to have this little deep conversation here, and we got it recorded also. Um, Thank you so much. It was so nice having you on the show. We'd love to have you back again when we're going on our second rounds and and hear hear how things are progressing. I hope this podcast is able to bring some difference in the world of arts for Jewish women. I'm sure it will. Okay, great. Thank you so much for being on our show. Good luck with everything. And hire Laura for your events, and especially when it comes for women. But Laura performs for mixed audiences as well. And it's important to hire women for these events also because they can. I can't, but you can, and you should. This is Francisca, and thank you for listening to the Francisca Show podcast. See you next week.